Hello, and welcome to the Meltdown City Podcast. I'm Nicole. And I'm Allie. This podcast is about getting unstuck out of your comfort zone and changing things up, all while not taking yourself too seriously, or us either. Come laugh, get inspired, and have fun. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Meltdown City Podcast. I'm Nicole. And I'm Allie. We are so lucky to have world traveler and photographer Eric Prince with us on the show today. He's also a blogger, a vlogger, and a speaker. His website is minoritynomad.com, where you can find all things Eric Prince. I strongly recommend you follow his Instagram at minoritynomad for his thought-provoking posts, vibrant photographs, and amazing Insta stories. We're currently talking to him in Bangkok, Thailand, where he lives full-time. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning. Yes, yeah, 7.30 a.m. here. And I uh, just got <laughs> finished with my run, so I'm feeling, feeling kind of good right now. No way. That's awesome. I was going to ask you if you've had your coffee yet. but Yeah, you know what? I don't mess with coffee, actually. Um, I'm a tea guy, but uh, no, I, I, I usually... So my day starts about 6 o'clock. Uh, 6.30, I'm done with breakfast, heading to the gym. I work out from 7 to 9 on a normal day. And then I have my first cup of tea at 10 a.m. when I get to the office. So, yeah, my, my schedule is pretty tight in the morning. That's amazing. Wow. I'm so impressed. I feel like if I was traveling the world or it'd be, it'd be hard, I think, to create a routine like that where you just sort yeah. of locked in. And um, so I'm super impressed. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's cool because it makes... You know, the one thing that I've learned by doing this for so long is that it's those anchor activities that keep you grounded and keep you moving forward. And for some, you know, for, for a lot of people, it is working out. It's, it's going to the gym or it's watching Netflix or it's it's doing whatever you enjoy doing. For me, it's, you know, health, it's physical fitness. And I'm that kind of person. If I don't get it done in the morning, I'm not going to do it. Like, so yeah. it's best to get up, get it done. And for me, uh, I don't really go out as much as I used to. I don't party that much. So going to bed at 11 p.m. is easy for me now. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe I'm just getting old. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're just dialing back the party. But you can bring the party. I'm, yeah. I'm wherever sure. I go, wherever I go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. I was just telling Nicole how I was in like a major funk. And the reason why was because I've been neglecting like my physical health and been yeah. really consumed by work and not taking care of my body. And so, it's well, I common, actually, it really yeah. is a lot of people because I, I find things like uh, coffee to be a crutch, uh, coffee, weight loss pills, um, Red Bulls. These are all crutches and you can naturally increase your energy and your focus by just working out. Uh, yep. and, 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 and adjusting your diet. I mean, and these are things that are relatively simple to do and they don't fund a uh, misleading billion dollar fitness industry either. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I'm not much of a cop. Well, I try not to be, I drink decaf or tea, but lately I've been doing more coffee and it's like, Oh my God. And then that's also contributing to it. Cause I'm like, got this caffeine hangover and I feel like yep. crap and I haven't moved for eight hours, you know? So anyway, but oh, anyway, enough now. about me. Good for you. <laughs> um, tell us about how you got into photography as a career. Well, um, you know, photography has been a part of my life for a long time. I, I always say it saved my life. And I really believe that um, I was a I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, mm -hmm. and I was pretty much a straight A student growing up. But I went to Cleveland Public Schools. And the problem with Cleveland Public Schools in the 80s and the 90s was 
that they just had far too many students, not enough teachers underfunded in uh, low income communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kids who are brilliant and it's not to, you know, um, brag on myself. Um, there are plenty of kids who are still there who are absolutely brilliant. They just don't know what to do with them. They don't mm-hmm. know that it's, it's an antiquated model of education in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So we would get, we would be getting straight A's academically, but we didn't want to go to class because we had nothing to do. Mm. And for me, it, it was just I, I would prefer to hang out in the hallways because I really had no reason to be in class. Mm-hmm. So push came to shove and I was facing expulsion because I kept I never went to class. I kept coming mm. to class, kept uh, hanging out in the hallways. I would run from security because they were slow. And <laughs> it was really slow. It's baffling how they were slow. And uh, there was a guy named Brian Wasco, Mr. Wasco who happened to be friends with my grandfather. They grew up together in Cleveland. So Mr. Wasco, and it was funny because Mr. Wasco, I grew up in a 99.9% African-American neighborhood. Mr. Wasco was white. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Wasco was down. We like Mr. Wasco, he understood us in a way that most people didn't. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Wasco, I remember he brought me in his office. He said, look, you have one or two choices. I either spoil you or you take a vocational program. Well, I couldn't get expelled, so I took a vocational program. Mm-hmm. And I tried to go to uh, cosmetology because that's where all the girls work. Ah. <laughs> but it was full. They wouldn't let me go because it was full. So the next best thing was commercial arts. I had oh. no idea what commercial arts was. And I was like, all right, I'll do that one because it had a lot of girls in it. Yeah. So I went to commercial arts, and it was a, uh, the way my school had commercial arts was it's uh, either you sculpt, you paint, uh, you do any kind of uh, like this was the beginning of like Photoshop, like mm-hmm. the very, very beginnings of like any computer artistry. And mm-hmm. I couldn't do any of this stuff. I didn't have an artistic vault in my body. So Irene Schinkel was her name. She gave me a camera, an old, I want to say it was a Nikon D9, I believe it was, and gave me a roll of film and said, go. Didn't mm-hmm. teach me anything. She just, go, go take pictures. And I ran out, and I think I ran through these. I mean, it, it had to have been within minutes. I shot all these. <laughs> and then I brought them back to her, and the next day she took me to the dark room and taught me how to develop them. And they were absolutely terrible. I wish I had those pictures now again. To show how far I've come. They were were out of focus, overexposed. They were just Mm. terrible photos. And then she began to teach me why they were overexposed. Mm. And once I fixed that, my composition was off. And then she taught me why my composition was off. So by allowing me to make mistakes, she taught me photography. And, Mm. you know, long story long, I ended up becoming a school photographer. I shot everything from the school dances to sport events to family portraiture. No way. Uh, what I did was I used the school's equipment to make money on the side by taking pictures of families, then developing those at school, then selling the photos to people. Yes. So that's, <laughs> that's, how, awesome. that's, how, my, that's how my professional career started. Wow. Fast forward, uh, I joined the military. I was in the military for 10 and a half years uh, where I wasn't doing a lot of photography. And once I left, I just picked it right back up. And it was just something I loved. And after a while, I started posting my images and work online. 
And people just started gravitating towards it. People love what I did. And I was like, oh, all right, I guess I'll keep going. And I've been shooting ever since full time, seven years now. No wow. way. That is amazing. Yeah, the way you capture people is really unique and special, I think. I looked through some of your Instagram and, and you know, the, the faces of people that you capture really tell a story. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I, Gordon Parks was my favorite photographer. And I always had this, um, this desire. I, I find that, uh, no offense to anybody, but white people have, have misrepresented too many groups over the mm-hmm. years in media, particularly photography, um, specifically African peoples. And mm-hmm. I, one of the reasons, I started a small foundation years ago to teach uh, kids about photography and travel, because I think one of the biggest issues in the world is that the people who are telling these stories are not from these places. They mm-hmm. aren't of these communities, of these people. Mm-hmm. And the best, the, the, the best person to tell you the story is the oppressed individual. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do in my photography is, which is the reason you never see selfies of me, is mm-hmm. I remove myself from the story. Mm-hmm. I'm just a conduit between mm-hmm. two worlds. I'm a bridge. That's why I consider I consider myself a bridge. And when I capture these images, I allow the people to tell the story through their actions, through their expressions, through their narrative. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I try to bring across in my photography work is that this is the the accurate representation as an outsider. This is as accurate as I can get, but mm. this is the person and this is what they're saying. Mm-hmm. I think That's about amazing. your work and I, your pictures that you had, I think it was maybe from Varnasi or, or in India. Um, I probably oh, said it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, there's some images of some men there and I just like, just like took my breath away. How you, the, these images of these people and you feel like you have a sense of like, um, or you, and maybe you might have a sense of what they're going through or what, but it makes you wonder like what, what is going on in their mind or their, their background or what brought them there. And anyway, I just, I feel like they're just like mystical, mystical images. And it's that, uh, thank you. Thank you for that compliment. A huge compliment. But I, I also think that that's important to get in photography, you know, um, it's, it's very, while photography can be biased, it's, it always, it should always lead people to think, um, everything I produce has to do two things or I won't post it, entertain and educate, no matter what it is, writing, writing photos, podcasts or whatever. And when people say things like that about my work, I appreciate it because that's always my goal. Sometimes, I can't tell the entire story, but if you, your interest is peaked to the point where you start to re- do more research on Varanasi or the Nagasadus or uh, the Kumela, like if you start to research that, I've done my job. Is I've inspired you to seek out more information, and and that's very important. Is there any work that you've done that you're most proud of, like there, um, or like that sticks out in your mind? It's like piece that means the most to you or the project um, from from a photography standpoint i think it has to be my work in asia um i don't know it's something about asia here that just speaks to me i i i, I think i produce my best work here by far because i'm extremely passionate about it here um 
when I go to Europe, Europe is more of a, it's more business for me, which is why I don't enjoy going to Europe as much as I used to. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sparked as much. I love the museums in Europe, but overall, I find that I'm more fascinated by the cultures and the histories and the peoples of Asia in general. Uh, likely because it's the, it, it, you can't get more polar opposite from East Cleveland, Ohio, than Varanasi, <laughs> India. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you can't get more different than that. So I gravitate towards those contests. So uh, things like the Kumela, which was uh, the largest gathering of humans in the world, in uh, Allahabad, uh, India. Um, Taipusam was a um, a a Hindu festival, more specific, a Tamil festival I covered in Kuala Lumpur earlier this year. Uh, projects like that, um, I did uh, Chinese New Year, uh, the Ping Shi Festival in Taiwan a couple of years ago, I'm really proud of. So uh, yeah, uh, pretty much any anything I've done in Asia. That's wonderful. When did you decide to live full-time as a digital nomad? When Donald Trump got elected? Smart. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Never going back. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> We've all wanted to do that. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, honestly, I was in the military for 10 and a half years. And I kind of think it was always in me. Um I just never, after, you know, living in Korea, living in Germany, living in Turkey, um, it just didn't feel right uh, when going back to the States. The U.S. stopped feeling right for me. Um, I don't believe most people are born where they belong. Uh, the 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 cultural norms the the um, the way people treat each other uh, the food the the cost of living in the states overall it just didn't appeal to me anymore um, mm-hmm. so um, when I left I literally bought a one way ticket to London with no plans to come back I was like well I'm just gonna figure it out and that's what I did that's really what I did minority nomad shouldn't exist because it started with zero plan zero groundwork. Nothing. I started with $19,000 and a one-way ticket. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's and incredible. I just happened to just keep going. And I, it's one of those things, uh, I, I, I really, honestly, I'm just lucky. Uh, you know, I hate when people tell me I'm lucky, but seriously, things just lined up for me. And I believe in putting yourself in a position to be lucky, like mm. to, to take advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, it's one of those things I always have your camera at your side to capture in a moment. And I mm-hmm. believe that's you know the same thing when it comes to your skill set. No matter what you do, always have those skills sharp and ready. So when that blessing shows up, you can take the advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You know, when something is like, oh, well, we need this article written. Oh, well, let me, let me go study long form narrative and I'll get back to you in a month. No, so we need you to be able to do that right now. And yeah. I happened and the military trained me for that. It trained me to always be prepared, always ready for something. So as I explored the world, as I, you know, I, I kind of found myself as a person, which is what travel really did for me in the beginning, in the early days after, after leaving the military, helped me find who I am as a civilian, as a human. I began wow. to gravitate towards places like Bangkok, which is home for me now, places like Istanbul, Budapest, and Prague, and Penang and Malaysia, and Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, like, my God, they, these places are amazing. Each one has its own vibe and energy and the way it moves and the way it thinks and how people interact with each other. What, like, How can I be a part of this? How can I be 
like a, a, a South African or a, or a Thai or a South Korean or a Czech? Like, how can I be like these people? So that led me to really start to establish this as my life. And I want to say it was around 2014. And that was it for me. Mm. Did you, what, go ahead, Nicole. Oh, I have so many questions. I like you, <laughs> I mean, when you're, when you're, tr- when that, in the beginning place, when you started off, like, did you have fear about like what, you know, you still, you did it, you, but were you scared? And then like, how did you, how did nope. you handle that? No. Nope. Yes. Nope. Oh my God. Nope. I love it. I'm never like, like, honestly, like, uh, like when people, I, I, people ask me that all the time, like, how, like, are you, you ever scared? Absolutely not. Like, this was like the easiest thing for me to do in the years. I used to get shot at for a living. <laughs> that was my job. Like, people would shoot at me <laughs> just because, like, like, wait, I don't even know you, homie. Why you should, like. Oh, my God. But you got to remember, like, I grew up in East Cleveland where it, I mean, it's not the, the nicest place in the world, it's, you know, dangerous, aggressive, angry. Then I joined the military for two and a half years, dangerous, angry. And now I travel the world and I eat noodles and get paid to do it. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's really not a lot of scary. The thing is, like, I always tell people, uh, people are like, oh, I hate my job. Okay, well, quit. It's a yeah. shitty job. Like, do you not believe you can get another shitty job? Like, there are plenty of those going around. So, <laughs> I mean, like, like it, it, that's how I look at it. Um, I'm not, I'm not afraid to get lost because I know I can do it. I know I have the mental, physical ability to do something. Worst case scenario, I can work in a hostel or open a hostel. Worst case scenario, all things yeah. you know? I mean, yeah. Really, there's no like. I, I, maybe I'm just a different kind of person, I guess. But yeah, absolutely no fear at all. I've not been afraid of this journey one step of the way at all. I've been frustrated by it, um, but never in fear. Wow! Can you speak to anything that's been frustrating? Like if it if it comes to mind, if not, yeah. Um, well, one of the biggest things is uh, clients. You know, um, when you're a freelance journalist. It's very difficult, especially in 2019, where everything's mad digital. Um, it's difficult to find clients who are willing to pay you what you're worth. And it's also hard to find clients once they agree to pay you to pay you on time. Mm. Because, you know, um, when you're dealing, you're not only dealing with U.S. companies. Like this year, I would say around 60% of my billings was from U.S. companies, which is rare, which is up from about 37% last year. And that's where it kind of hovered for years. So I would deal with companies in Europe and Africa and South America and Asia. And, you know, the way they operate is just different. You know, uh, for example, yeah. Thai companies, sometimes they'll take 60 to 90 days to pay you. Um, U.S. companies tend to take uh, 30 to 45 days. So as a, as a person, as a human trying to make a living, um, it's difficult uh, to adjust to that. Um, now it's, it's, a, it's different now. Um, that I'm a little bit more established in my career. So uh, people tend to respect my 30-day window. But mm-hmm. you know, it's still it's still difficult. It's still frustrating, um, not only finding those clients, but also getting them to pay you on time. Um, it's the, the preconceived notions about my industry in general. 
is, is difficult to deal with, with, uh, you know, friends and family. You know, some people think you're rich because you travel around the world. Um, and then some people think you're a slacker because you travel around the world. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> you know it, it, it's, it's just those different perspectives. Um, building a personal life is extremely difficult, uh, not only romantically, but just socially. It's very difficult. Um, something you'll realize very quickly. And, and this is, I always caution people uh, to this fact, if you love your family, don't become a freelance travel journalist. <laughs> it's not a great family life. It's just not, you know, I was just on the road for, I was in Europe for five, no, four months in Europe. Then I did it a month in the U.S. And now I'm back on the road, back home for a month in Bangkok. Then I'm on the road until see, three months after Christmas. Then I'm back in Bangkok for two months. Then I see my mom for a week. She's coming to Thailand for the first time. And then, then she goes home and down back on the road all summer. It's just not conducive to uh, uh, a, a great personal life. So yeah, those are just, uh, just a few of the things that kind of make it uh, difficult, a difficult life to live. Mm. Yeah. But, worth, but worth it in the end? Worth it. Every minute. <laughs> worth it. Yeah. That's amazing. Good for you. Um, so, and, and as you say that, I was thinking about, I know that you really like Anthony Bourdain and respected his career a lot. And it reminded me of how, you know, when he died, I think people thought to themselves, gosh, there's this guy with this amazing career and how yeah. much fun it would be and interesting. And, um, but at the same time he was gone, you know, like he never got to see his daughter very often or, you know, have long-term relationships and he really i started noticing that he talked about loneliness all, all the time yep yep people do didn't you, pick up on it yeah do you do you, i mean obviously you talked about some of your anchoring behaviors and stuff and how you kind of combat that but there's got to be lonely moments out there too oh yeah of course it's like i mean you know just from an interpersonal just there's times you know um i, I living in bangkok i have some great friends here they drive me crazy Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're, they're lazy. I mean, they're, they're lazy. I love them, but they're so lazy. And it's like Bangkok, Bangkok is a, a great example. Bangkok's one of those places where people come to escape. Um, yeah. Because, because it's, it's easy. It's very easy to survive here. Even mediocre people can survive here. It, it's, it's, it's designed that way where the cost of living is low. People are extremely nice. The weather is relatively good. You're close to a bunch of beaches. You can get anywhere in the world within 12, 14 hours. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that I started to notice the more I push myself is that the people around you need to be equally motivated and driven or it's going to drive you mad. Yeah. It's like... Um, you know, if you, you and somebody else have the same exact job, you're making the same money, but you tend to work harder than that other person and mm -hmm. they get credit. It is like, drive. <laughs> and that's my friends, you know, my friends party every single night and, 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 you know, refuse to get up and go to the gym with me in the morning anymore. And it's like, man, <laughs> I love you guys, but I can't hang out with you anymore because you drain me. Yeah. And that's frustrating. And people who are part of your, your community who do move like you, they're too busy because they're moving like you. Yeah. They're, they're adjusting, they're working, they're studying, they're creating content, they're traveling. 
Like that's the problem with so many travel journalists. Like we love each other. Like we have a very close community, but we always travel. We see yeah. once a year. We the only reason we go to conferences is to hang out with our friends. Nice. Like that's the easiest way to get me to talk at and speak at a conference is if my friends are there. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. Anika's going to be there. Okay, I'll be there. <laughs> like, <laughs> very easy to get me when my friends are there. Um, and you know, sometimes you get horny. I mean, just yeah. Like you're yeah. like, man, I need some something going on. What's happening? But yeah, you're, you're, you're in some small village in Italy where you don't speak Italian. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you you find yourself in that position a lot, you know, especially as a black man. You know, um, living in Asia. It's a uh, a lot of our friends back home is oh my god you must have all these Thai girlfriends and I'm like yeah I don't like I'm not particularly attracted to Asian women in general so mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me dating like trying to find somebody to date because you know you can't control your physical attraction right so, yeah and even and even when I have dated uh, Asian women there's a very big cultural issue out here where it's okay uh, can I cuss on this podcast yes oh yeah okay it's okay to fuck you but they won't marry you like, really yeah they, they won't take you home so that's oh. an issue that a lot of people of color have to deal with in Asia and oh. when you choose to live out here yeah, that's part of that's part of it. That's part of the the problem. Europe's easy, uh, North America's easy, but Asia, ooh, it's rough. It's really, really rough uh, dating for people of color out here. So yeah, when it comes to you know loneliness, you know, um, when Anthony took his own life, I saw it because I saw, and I'm not comparing myself to Anthony Bourdain. He's a he's a genius. I saw, a, I could hear it. In a lot of the things he was saying, I could see it in his face. I thought, oh yeah, he's burnt out. Oh, he's burnt yeah. out. Because yeah. I've been there so many. We've all any any anybody who's a professional travel journalist, they see it. They can we can see it. We can smell it on people. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's, he's been on the road too long. And it's mm-hmm. and it's and it's not only is it that, but it's it's emotionally draining, particularly when you actually try and you care when you actually care about people it's very difficult to go to impoverished places and not mm. feel it india is heartbreaking for me it's an emotional overload for me because you see so much poverty so much abuse so much disparity that you can't not be changed by it you you yeah. it's not possible to n- not feel that and internalize it when you're actually a caring human being so, you know, when it came down to Anthony, I was like, oh, man, I get it. I really do. I get it. And it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, hey, rest um, in peace. Yeah. 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 OK, so you have a goal to be the first African-American to visit all countries. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that mission and where are you at in that journey? So uh, disclaimer. Uh, there is apparently somebody who's already done it, a woman by the name of Wani Spots, S P O T T S. And, you know, press releases started to come out um, a couple months ago. Um, but she was, she was on no social media and she's been traveling since she was like a toddler. And apparently she's done it. So congrats, I, congratulations to her. 
Uh, and then there's another sister, uh, Jessica. I can't remember her last name. Um, and she does like catch me if you can. Mm-hmm. I think she's getting very close to doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So either way, she would have beat me anyway. Um, but you about, could be the first African American male. Yeah, these I sound could like be. females to me. Yeah, yeah, I could be. I could be. Um, but you know, honestly, the every, a lot of people think the point of that was for some validation. It, it never was. Um, I mm-hmm. actually don't really care about it. Um, I, if an, an, another black man did it tomorrow, I would be extremely happy because then I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it. It came. It was born of a idea that I had. So basically, I had I have this small I had this small foundation that I started for low income kids to teach them about travel and photography. Um, in my research for that, I was looking to interview the person, the first African-American to have gone to every country or any African-American that had gone to every country. I could not find them. So I started to do research with uh, TCC, the Traveler Century Club, Nomadless, um, Alyssa of Nomads, and different other organizations that track these kind of things. Guinness World Records. Nobody had a record of a person who had done it before. So I said, hey, I should do it because if I started to do it, it will put me in a position to speak about the disparity between African-Americans, Latinos, and white travelers. A lot of people don't know that over 80% of those who study abroad are white from the Mm -hmm. States. Um, It's estimated that only 17% of African-Americans even have passports. As Americans, we barely just crack 50% passport ownership, and that's because we now need passports to go to Canada and Mexico. Mm, which is yeah. where most people go. Right. So um, th- that was the original reason that I started this journey. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've just been just trucking along. And which is why people get mad at me. It's like, oh, why haven't you finished yet? Like, because it's not like my permit. That's going to take a long time. Too. I got a job. Like, I got a job, <laughs> people. Like, um, for example, Jessica, that's her thing. That's what she does. If I, I would have been done with this three years ago if it was actually my goal. That was my yeah. own goal. Um, but right, as of right now, I'm at 95 countries. And the thing about travel journalism is it tends, as a career, it tends to send you to some of the same places over and over and over again. Like, yeah. my whole, I, like I did not go to a new place in in uh, Europe that whole four months outside of new mm-hmm. cities. But as far as countries, I didn't go to a new country because all my jobs was in places that I've been before. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So currently I stand at 95 um, hopefully next year I can rack up another 10 or 11 new countries next year. Give me I, hundreds tough. Hundreds been, it, it's been, and this is like the slowest I've been going lately too. So <laughs> I kind of want to kick it a little more into high gear, but yeah, I'm in uh, 95 countries now. That's one but with it, Sri Lanka. Oh, it, it's about the journey though, right? Because if yeah, you just rush through it, then yeah. Oh, right. it's me. I can't, I, I just can't do what some people are doing. Like some people who've been to every country in the world, they just went for maybe a couple hours and then left. I'm like, I'm not doing that. That doesn't count. It's, it's so ridiculous. It, it, to me, no offense, to me, I find it ridiculous. <laughs> so my rule is <laughs> seven, 72 hours in a, in a place. Like 72 yeah. hours, at least 72 hours in a place, and you have to eat the meals and speak to the locals. That's my yes. rule. Ooh, I love it. I love it. How speak, many countries the are there in the world, you guys? I don't know that answer. It depends on who you ask, but some say 195, some say 192, some say 197. I'm oh, you're close. I'm you're like halfway there. Yeah, yeah. Once I crack 100, it's going to be a good party. I was like, good celebration. <laughs> yeah, pop, pop some bottles. Pop some bottles. 
Cool. So as a follow-up to that, can you educate us a little bit about the Black travel movement and how that started and how you're involved in it? So uh, the Black travel movement uh, really is it's interesting because it's like I'm thinking now. The Black travel movement kind of started, I want to say, I'll give it, let's say 2009-ish. Um, and in 2009, 2010, with people like Fly Brother, uh, Ernest White III, mm-hmm. and Onika Raymond, Onika the Traveler. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two, um, and there was also Greg Gross on Black and I Travel. Um, Greg doesn't blog anymore, but uh, I, I would say those three were for, uh, three of the first uh, Black travel bloggers. Um, mm-hmm. And the Black travel movement has always existed. Black folks have been traveling since the Green Book, you know, way back in. Uh, back in the day, the um, 1800s, it's a 1900. Everybody, we've been traveling. The mm-hmm. problem is we've never been represented. And there were wow. a lot of people producing content for people of color until just recently, which is why the Black Travel Movement is getting so much more attention now. Um, because, you know, social media has just you know made it easier for people of color to connect with each other. So uh, the three that I previously mentioned, I credit them really starting uh, what we have today. Uh, People like myself, uh, who I started in uh, 2012, um, Gloria Atamo, uh, the blog abroad, um, and and several others. I would say we were probably the second wave generation to come through. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of new uh, bloggers, a lot of amazing new bloggers. who are, who are coming along. But overall, the Black Travel Movement is um, more social now. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of different uh, groups like um, Black Travel Movement is one group. Um, I'm Black and I Travel is another one. Uh, black Girls Traveling is another group. Nomadness Travel Tribe is probably the most uh, well-known now. Um, and yeah, they just there was actually just a, a conference that I couldn't make. They were in Memphis. Uh, this past weekend, it's called Audacity Fest, which is put on by the founder of Nomadness, where you have all people of color presenting and speaking uh, about all things travel. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so I the Black Travel Movement is growing up very quickly, and I'm blessed to be uh, considered one of the OGs of Black Travel, even though I'm only 36. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, you know, still, uh, still, it's only... I would say those of us who are making a living out of travel journalism, it's only maybe three black men, I can think of, three or four of us. Wow. Uh, Not a lot of us. So it's still a long way to go. And and it's difficult, you know, the same, you know, our our Caucasian contemporaries are dealing with some of the same issues we are. And it's even worse for us because our audiences just aren't as big as theirs. Um, And it's not because of, or lack of ability or talent is just a numbers game. You know, who has travel been marketed to uh, yeah. both commercially and culturally? And it leans against us. So, um, you know, things are changing. You know, uh, people like myself, uh, Onika, um, Gloria, we are definitely blessed to be getting a lot of amazing opportunities with great companies, uh, a lot of features in us. Uh, Magazines like Forbes and Vanity Fair and Ebony and Fox, um, we're doing very, very great things. But what we're trying to do is uh, create a sustainable industry uh, that values people of color's dollars um, in a global capacity. That's amazing. 
I was thinking, I, I think I listened to a podcast you were on recently. I think it was Pinot Noir. Oh, um, yeah, Point Noir. Yeah, it's Point great. Noir. Um, point, <laughs> sorry. For, um, no, but Pinot it Noir, like, is a, that's, a, that's a wine. Come on. <laughs> I know. I was like, shit. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things that you said that was so great is, um, you know, it's important to have people doing the things out there so you think that you can. Like growing up, yeah. So like, that's one of the things that's just um, was just so beautiful. You know, like representation matters. That people just don't understand how much. You know, um, Point Noir is run by a brother named uh, Jerry Thompson. Jerry Thompson, shout out Jerry Thompson. He's doing amazing things. Um, and it's like when you grow up in a world that doesn't value you or people who look like you, why would you think that you could do these things? And it's always interesting where I get pushback from my white friends. It was like, oh, well, why wouldn't you think it? I was like, well, because you've grown up in a world that told you you can do anything. Even, mm-hmm. even if it didn't tell you that, it showed you that. Like the heroes of every movie yeah. are white. Every yeah. politician is white. Every yep. cop is white. Like every mm-hmm. hero is white. Like, of course you think you can do anything as a middle-class white male because the world is catered to you forever. But mm-hmm. as a young, poor black man, it's like, ugh, who's, who are my heroes? Like hip hop artists and athletes. That's, that's all they give us. That's all they give us. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's time to, you know, I, I advocate for looking at intellectuals. Like for, for people who have really changed how we think, people like James Baldwin and Gordon Parks and Maya Angelou, like mm-hmm. people of color who have not only transcended these industries, but have given a voice to people of color globally and opportunities. You know, I, I, I still find it frustrating that the most, so probably if you, had people around the world make a list of the top five black people, most of those will be entertainers. I don't think yeah. President Obama would even hit the list. Wow. I, I don't believe it. I do not believe President Obama would hit that list. Even in the US, I don't believe he would hit, hit that list. So it, it's, you know, that's why seeing somebody like President Obama was so powerful, so mm-hmm. impactful. Not because of what he did as a politician but because of what he represented as a human, the, the yeah. potential for anybody yeah. to really reach the heights of their industry. And that's what politics is. It's an industry. For mm. him to reach the pinnacle of his industry was something truly, truly special. Amen to that. It sure was. I remember where, I mean, when Seattle, I mean, it really felt like for a moment, and it's probably very different to me than it was for you, but it felt like, oh my God, like their world, our world is changing. Like it's mm-hmm. po- like things are possible. Like where people were partying into the streets and like crying and, you know, just like overjoyed with emotion of like, wow, maybe the tides have turned. Maybe something is, is different. Something will be different. Yeah. We didn't feel that way. Yeah. We, we, we knew better. Yeah, we, 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 it was a it was a funny thing. Have you seen the Saturday Night Live sketch with Dave Chappelle uh, after Trump got elected? <laughs> no, I don't think no, so. No, no, we will look you, it up. You should look it up. It was a, it was a, a sketch with Dave Chappelle, and Chris Rock, 
uh, after Trump got elected. And it was so funny because it was so true. It's like people are like, oh, I cannot believe we elected this guy. But are we really racist in America? And I'm like, yeah, but black people, we've known this. <laughs> like, this is, yeah, it was like, it was, it was almost the problem. The problem was with the Obama presidency was that so many people believed that it was like the end of racism in America, mm. which is why Trump was so shocking to so many. It was like, wait, what? What just happened? I thought we were moving forward and we stopped working. That was mm. the thing. We stopped working. It's like, okay, we have we have a guy now. So we, we're all good. And, and, and this is just not just for white people. This is for people of color as well. We, we stopped working, moving forward, trying to find those individuals that we can hold up and advocate and ride with. And here we are. <laughs> oh, my God. Here we are. <laughs> it's, oh, my God. Yeah. I, it's ripped. Just, it's like a, our, it, here's our ugly face. Like, here it is. Yep. And it, yep. I just, just like, oh, my fucking God. I, yep. But we it's, to it's, see it. yeah, because like you, I mean, it's been there. It's been yeah. there, which is, I mean, I just, it's yeah, uncomfortable, but, it's, but wow, I just, it's, you know, it's, you know, it, it, I, I think it's, you know, I, I think maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cynical because it was like, I don't trust anybody. And like, for me, politicians are just all shady. And I've, and I get in trouble for admitting this. I've always been a Trump fan, but not a President Trump fan. I've been a Trump the character fan. Like, mm-hmm. People forget, and it, and it frustrates me because people I know who love Donald Trump. I'm like, you watch The Apprentice as much as I did. What are you talking about? <laughs> like you have always, America has always been a fan of Donald Trump, and people can say whatever they want now. But Donald Trump has always been one of the most popular people in America, one way or the other, and. As a caricature, we created it. We created the Kardashian effect. We created that. So until we, as a nation, realize our culpability in these things, in racism, in sexism, in homophobia, we can't change anything because people are too busy social signaling. Like, oh, I didn't vote for him. Hashtag not my president. Well, I'm sorry, but it's your system too. And we all have to figure out a way to fix this together as opposed to pointing fingers and blaming each other and going like, yo, let's just work together and try to fix this because it will happen again. Sorry. Like that's our system's design. This could happen again. So what do we do to prevent this from happening again? Because yelling and blaming each other isn't working. Clearly, clearly that doesn't work. So what do we do to move forward as people? And I think once we get to that, that stage, that space, then we can move together. That's that's just on a country scale. I think one mm-hmm. of the biggest issues globally is we tribalize so easily, and it's getting it's getting worse now. You see it in Germany, you see it in the UK, you see it in Thailand, where people are extremely tribal. It's like no, the bigger the the, the world's becoming more connected, but we're becoming more divided because we hunker down in these spaces that cater to us, mm. and we refuse to have these difficult conversations. And I see it around the world all the time. And, you know, Trump is always a catalyst for a good conversation at a hostel. And it's and you and you see it. And people are absolutely shocked when I say the things that I say about President Trump. And if I don't fully denounce every single thing that's come out of his mouth, I'm, you know, you voted for Trump. Like, well, no, I didn't. 
But I also just don't blindly condemn anybody for anything. I understand our system. And I think it's important that we all do and we have these difficult conversations. Gosh, travelers are so enlightening. Maybe it's just you, Eric. <laughs> God, you have a lot of good insights. Well, you're forced. And you're, it sounds forced. like you learn them from the road, which is oh, cool. Oh, God, yeah. Like, you know, I, I, when you grow up in, in, in the States, is you're programmed. We're, we're all mm -hmm. socially and culturally programmed uh, to be who you are. Like your, your parents, your friends, your family, your, your, your religious background, i.e. church or mosque or whatever have you. Um, mm -hmm. The universities you go to, all of these things program you to be a certain kind of person, which is mm -hmm. why we're relatively homogenous. Like mm -hmm. you go to South Side of Chicago, and people tend to look and think the same. You go to Oregon, people tend to look and think the same in these communities. You know, we 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 talk about diversity. I'm like, yeah, that's cute and all, but are we really that diverse? Like, if you go to a relatively close community, everybody looks and thinks the same. People usually date within that community, that environment. So you're, you're programmed, you're manufactured, you're created. So when you leave that environment, who are you? And that's what travel does, um, mm -hmm. which is why I advocate everybody take a solo trip traveling by themselves. You really learn who you are and what you believe because everything that you believe is not being reinforced anymore. Mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah. it, so absolutely. powerful. I mean, if you're, in, if you're a hyper-liberal living in California, it's not that hard to find other hyper liberals to, you know, parrot exactly what you're saying. But if you go from there to uh, a place like Germany, who thinks our hyper liberals are ridiculously conservative, you're going to really, really learn something like, wait a minute, what? I mean, yeah. This, you know, liberalism in the U.S., it's extremely conservative by European standards. To just as an example, and if you've never seen that, how can you actually challenge? Uh, how can you effectively understand your position if it's never challenged? Mm. So many people have these beliefs and ideals that have never been truly challenged, and they've never been forced in a position where they actually have to talk about it. You know, when when you're in your environment, you can either you just tell somebody to fuck off, but when yeah. you're in their environment, you have to engage. Mm -hmm. You're a guest. You're 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 disarmed. You have no exit route and you have to engage. So what that's taught me is to be more fluid, more flexible in my, my beliefs and being open to changing my mind when new information is presented. And I think that's a, that's a universal staple in travel. Yeah. And that's such an important life lesson. I just, you know, we don't need to be stuck in who we are, you know, like yeah. stuck being the same. That's boring. Yeah. I don't want to be who I was 10 years ago. I didn't like yeah. him. He was, he was mm -hmm. awesome, but I didn't like him very much. <laughs> uh, but even, even last year, I'm not the same as I was last year because, I, because I'm moving forward. If you're not, I always tell people this. If you have to work today for what you want tomorrow, and if you didn't work yesterday, you have no right to complain today about what you don't have. Mm -hmm. And wow. every day is... It, it should be moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. You should challenge yourself to fail daily. Find something you suck at and fail at it every <laughs> single day and learn from it. Because people are so afraid to fail now. They're so afraid to be wrong. Why? Like you didn't come out the womb walking. You fell right. on your little butt a lot. Mm -hmm. Like there's photos and videos of me falling regularly. <laughs> 
<laughs> and at some point, at some point in our development, it became a problem to fall. We forgot how to fall. And when you forget how to fall, you forget how to get back up. Your ego keeps you safe. You're like your ego. It does. It really does. Or or fear, not even ego, fear. You know, fear, you know, fear feeds ego. Like it, it, you, you can't be fearless and have an ego. It's just not possible. Yeah. They go right. hand in hand. So when you let go of fear, when you let go of that fear of judgment, you let go of that fear of failure, you let go of that fear of pain, then you can move forward again. Then you can learn. Like this, this like, like, like we were talking about earlier, I'm lo- I get lonely sometimes. And that hurts. You know, like I, I, I remember I was in London recently. Um, I was in London um, for, for a, a conference and I was walking through a wharf uh, with a friend of mine and I was looking at all these people in groups who were like having happy hour and, you know, laughing and, and singing and drinking. And I'm like, man, I miss that. Like I, I miss that being around my friends who know me and, and we have inside jokes and, and, you know, we can make fun of each other. I don't have that anymore. But it's worth mm-hmm. it. But it's worth it. So I, I feel the pain. I still feel it. I feel it. But I recognize where it's coming from. I recognize why I feel it. And I use it to my advantage. And I move forward. And that's the key is finding that pain, being okay with it, embracing it, and using it as a as a stepping stone to the things that you want to achieve in life. I want oh I want to meet you, Eric. <laughs> Nicole, maybe you can take me to the next conference with you. <laughs> I want to see this man for myself. Shake yeah. his hand. Wow. Yeah. I I also want to just keep talking to you, Eric. I'm so inspired and I'm just amazed and honored that you spent some time talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Like, these are awesome. I love doing these. Like, they're always fun. Podcasts are fun. It's like, I want to start a podcast, but I know I don't have the personal time or discipline to do it. So I was like, I'll just, I'll just take invites. Like, who wants me on a podcast? <laughs> yeah, well, we can bring you back in six months and meet the new Eric, because I know you're constantly getting better and improving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. Anytime, anytime. I love to talk to you. Do you guys have, or do you have any book recommendations before we go? Do we have time for that, Nicole? Ooh, there's always time for book recommendations. Yes. Yeah. Let me see. Um, I, I like, there's a book called uh, Principle-Centered Leadership. Um, it's mm-hmm. Stephen Covey. Uh, that's, mm. that's one of my favorite books, um, The Art of War. Um, it, mm. It's kind of, um, it, it's kind of a cliche, but if, if you read The Art of War, if you really read it, and you pair it with principle-centered leadership, it would totally change how you view um, your interactions with people, employees, and your boss. It will Ooh. open your eyes to a lot of things. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a, a book by uh, Mark Manson, The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yep. Um, and, I've, and I've met Mark, and I was like, yo, you stole these from black people. But... He's <laughs> super cool dude. But like the, the way that Mark presents, I, I love his presentation style. And for me, I, I enjoy the book because it allows people the freedom to be who they are and to erase that fear. 
that judgment from others. I think that's one of the crippling effects, uh, one of the biggest issues for people who are looking to make a change, to make a shift, mm-hmm. to follow their dreams and their goals, is they uh-huh. give a fuck. And give right. a fuck, right. Yeah, and it was like, man, I don't get, like, people you know, constantly coming with, oh, what do you think about this? Like, you know, I don't give a fuck, man. I don't care. I, re- I just, <laughs> I don't. Like, I don't care how you feel about this. Like, and, and, and it's, you know, it, I, I just posted on Instagram about um, Saudi Arabia uh, opening up to tourism. And a lot of people ask me if I'm going to go, if I'm going to boycott them. I was like, of course I'm going. I, and of course they suck in a lot of ways, but I'm going. And it's like, well, you know, aren't you afraid of what people think? I don't give a fuck. I don't care. Like, I care about what people think about my travels once they start paying for them. Like when yeah. <laughs> for my trips, then you could tell me. Where to <laughs> Fuck up. And it, that's it's, right. You know, and, and, and I would say those three books are really uh, some uh, a few uh, really really good books. But there's um there's a podcast um, that I would recommend. Uh, uh, of course, Meltdown City is is on that list. <laughs> but uh, there's uh, one guy, and, and for actually recently, I'm getting old. I've been having like uh, memory issues, like really big memory issues, like gaps in my memory. I was just totally forget something, and it's detrimental in my career. So there was a, a podcast called Quick Brain, and there's this guy yes. named Jim Quick, K W I K. I've been listening to his his stuff, and my God, it, it just totally changed the way that I look at my brain. Um, mm-hmm. Because I was listening to a old Joe Rogan podcast. I want to say it was from maybe a year or so ago. Um, where there was a MIT uh, researcher and professor who was talking about aging and how we should treat aging as a disease as mm-hmm. opposed to something to deal with later on. And I, that totally changed my perspective on getting older. You know, I don't think you start thinking about getting old until you're 30. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hey, wait a minute, to think where everything just starts to slow down. I'm like, man, All right, let, me, let me make sure I'm okay in my 60s because I still want to be traveling the world, you know? Yeah, yeah. So those would, be my, sure. those would be my content recommendations. The, all of those, all three of those books are excellent reads. They're so much fun. Um, the presentation styles are absolutely excellent, and I love podcasts. You know, they're great for a good run, workout, uh, long travel, long flights. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, I can't thank you enough. We've had such a great time. I'm sure our listeners out there loved it too. It was riveting. Such a riveting conversation. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. Thank you, you, Eric. I know it was a long time coming, you know, I apologize. I'm hard to nail down sometimes. No, (laughs) no, it's okay. It's okay. I just want to say, Sawadika. Ah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> you guys gotta come out to visit sometimes. <laughs> Dude, Allie, let's get on a plane to Bangkok. Oh, um, hell yes. It's cheap on the West Coast, by the way. It's cheap on the West Coast. That's Round true. trip tickets under $500 out of LAX. That's nice. amazing. Let's do it. Okay, well, we'll have a it. wonderful day. Enjoy the thank rest of your so day. Thank you so much. And yeah, you guys thank you so back, much. Yeah, just send me, reach out to me if you guys ever want me back. Uh, I will be happy to talk to you ladies again. Thank you so much for having God, me. We would love it. Okay, bye. thank you so much. Okay, bye. bye. Thanks for tuning in today. 
Please follow us on Instagram at Meltdown City Podcast or on Facebook at Meltdown City Podcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at Meltdown City Pod. Come check out our website, MeltdownCityPodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on wherever you listen to our podcasts. You can email us at MeltdownCityPodcast at gmail.com for any stories, suggestions, or comments, and we'll read them on the air. Thanks for listening. 